brand is more important than it's ever been. Companies that grew up with passerby readers are dead. And if you don't have a consumer who's actively looking for your content, it is very difficult to build ancillary business models. If you look at what Snapchat's doing with advertising and storytelling, it's clear that digital can be more than the thing that we think it is. Welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Brian Morrissey. Before we get to this week's episode, I'm joined by our co-executive editor, Shereen Patak, who is the host of our new podcast called Starting Out, which features some of the biggest names in the marketing industry, telling us about how they got to where they are. We launched with interviews with Joga 5's Sarah Thompson and also Jeff Goodby from Goodby Silverstein and Partners. Um, and the most recent one was with Danny Lennon, right, Shereen? Yeah, we had uh, Danny Lennon, who is the founder of the Creative Register, sort of the OG connector of the OG industry. Connector. Okay, that's what, that's so what, what like is? So tell me about um, tell me about what's coming up this week. Uh, so this week, I'm really excited for this week's episode. Uh, we have Katrina Craigwell. Katrina, um, right now, she heads marketing innovation at GE Digital, but she's a very interesting and very, very interesting figure because she really has held, I want to say, seven or eight jobs in about seven or eight years at GE only. And she had she had a very interesting background. So we actually talked quite a bit about her first job in retail, she's gotten fired three or four times, and some of the lessons she's learned from some of those experiences, which are really interesting. Okay, can't wait, and I'm sure all of you can't wait. And so we're going to have a snippet after today's show that you can listen, but please do subscribe to Starting Out on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Thank you, Shireen. And now we're going to go on to this week's episode. And today I am joined by Craig Koslick of Condé Nast. Craig is the newly minted head of Condé Nast Lifestyles Collection, and we're gonna to get to what that means. Um, but it includes uh, the Food Innovation Group, which is home to Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and it also now includes uh, Architectural Digest, Self, Condé Nast Traveler. Am I missing anything, Craig? No, but I think you got all of them. All right, I got it. Perfect. Everything. So what is this? I mean, I, I know that big publishing companies love to reorganize themselves periodically. It's like a way to mark time. But what's, what's, the, what's the goal? with having these collections? I think, you know, ultimately the goal is we are in a world in which is more fragmented than it ever has been. And with so many people, you know, coming to agencies and client partners and wanting to talk to them about, you know, their services and, and their offerings, I think everyone is looking for bigger, fewer partnerships. And I think, you know, we are trying to reorganize ourselves in, mm -hmm. in a very similar fashion where we can come to the table with these portfolio of brands and bring solutions to clients um, to help them across multiple passion points um, as opposed to focusing kind of individually um, on each one and, 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 you know, trying to bring efficiencies of scale, right. efficiencies of time across that portfolio. So it's basically, it's trying to make it easier for people to give you money, but at the same time, not trying to, not sacrificing the uniqueness of each brand. It's Absolutely. A tough, it's a tough balancing. Act. Absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, on the editorial side, um, you know, there, there's, you know, different leaders across all of those different brands to make sure that the voice is, is differentiated. But I think on the business side, from a sales and marketing standpoint, um, people do want that one point of contact across, you know, multiple brands and, and, and across the portfolio. So I think, you know, what we're trying to do is align our sales and marketing with, with the way that clients want to buy. So does that mean one sales team for all of these publications? Correct. Okay. So there will not be specialists in in one versus the other. I mean, because, I mean, you have, you're bringing together people with different, you know, 
the people who worked on Architectural Digest are probably different than people who worked on Epicurious. Yeah, we, in terms of like the the client facing team uh, from a sales standpoint, they will represent the portfolio, but we will have, um, you know, specialists as it relates to things such as branded content, because the voice of these brands are going to be different. And so if we're working with partners to create content that is geared or specialized to one of those brands, we want to make sure that they are working from a production standpoint with somebody uh, well-versed in in the voice of that brand so that the advertiser can align to that and it doesn't feel um, out of place. So what's the biggest challenge in making these brands that that were born in print just as relevant in digital? I would say that the biggest challenge um, is to get the perception in the advertising marketplace to change. We offer so many different services and different opportunities and our brands are across so many different platforms, but everybody tries to simplify everything and break it down to its mm-hmm. least common denominator. Which is print. Which is print, or at least our heritage has started in print. Right. Right, and so again, as people try to bucket, you know, this is ad tech, this is yeah. social, we are publishers. And the connotation around what it means to be a publisher, I think, um, right now hasn't been super positive, uh, but, this is the, the 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 challenge that I think we have that we're solving is how do you, um, from a print standpoint, it was a one way conversation, right? It's we're producing, uh, you know, this content. Uh, you should run your ad next to this content versus a two way conversation and a client led conversation about what are your problems, um, listening to your problems, and then figuring out based off of our portfolio uh, what solutions we have that can help you solve those problems. So I think that difference between like, let me tell you about what my brand is doing so that you can run an ad adjacent to it versus Mm -hmm. that two-way dialogue and really, you know, acting as more of a consulting, uh, you know, a consultant for your clients. uh, I think that's just a, it's a different approach that we have been evolving to. But does inevitably print lead the conversation? No. No. You reacted like... (laughs) disdain no no it's not, nobody yeah. can see it that's why no, I have to it <laughs> so I, I would say that um that has been kind of like you know our focus again is really saying you know to to me there are two sides of our business there is a creative services and a creative strategy side of our business mm-hmm. and there is a media distribution side of our business and i really look at those things independently now at times people might get creative services and creative strategy as added value as part of a media distribution deal. So they're accessing our creative ability um, and the currency that we're trading on is media distribution dollars, but sure. they're still getting this value. And I think that is one of the big things that you know we have been focused on at the Food Innovation Group that you know, we'll continue to kind of carry on with, you know, the other brands uh, that are part of the lifestyle collection portfolio is um, making sure that we're very clear about what all of our services and our offerings are and assigning value to those things. Um, And again, if you want more of just creative services and creative strategy from a white label perspective, or you just want to, you know, give us production dollars Mm -hmm. to tap into that. um, So that's like acting like an agency when you're saying creative services. I don't know if it, you, I, I guess you could, it depends on what agency, but yeah, yeah. absolutely. I don't, but at, at the same time, I would say that um, there's, there's, it's, it's yes. people not coming to you just to reach your audience. Correct. Okay. It, it involves something more. And do most deals now have that? Yes. Okay. So I would say that 
deals historically have always had that. It's just the fact that like as as the idea of branded content and, and native has obviously taken off over the last whatever four or five years that because we have historically been in the business of getting media distribution dollars that we have just taken those distribution dollars without really laying out and clarifying what the creative services and creative strategy value we have been providing. Okay. So let's talk about new competition yeah. and, and we'll start in food because th this is a bonanza. Uh, this is, this is a wonderful time for those of us <laughs> who are into food, which yeah. I guess are the majority of, of people because there are a lot of people in the, in the food area right now. Yeah. And, and companies are springing up. Y your competitive sets change quite a bit, right? Yeah. Um, so talk to me about how you compete with, with a taste made and tasty in them, or is that a different, a different category altogether? No, I think that that is um, who probably we see in the marketplace uh, as frequently as, as anybody else. I mean, it's so interesting. So what's the pitch? They come to me and they tell me they've got these like billions of video views and stuff like this. I don't know, trillions. It might be trillions. <laughs> <laughs> Could be. Yeah, I wouldn't blink. I mean, at this point, <laughs> scale and is just a figment of our imagination. I like that. But I mean, what what is the you know when when you're up against um, these billions of video views? What's what's the pitch? Yeah. So I mean, for me, I really look at what is the what is the problem that you're looking to solve, and how can we help you solve that problem? And I think you know when you think about those other competitors, they have a format that kind of represents their brands in a lot of ways. And I think when you see those videos- The overhead hands thing? You know? Yeah, okay. absolutely. And when you look at those formats, I think that you have to ask yourself, you know, it's clear where that content is coming from or where the creative vision of that is coming from. And even if you're an advertiser and you're integrating into that, I would say that um, if you asked, a consumer when they walked away from that video what do they remember most it's the fact that it came from that producer and so to me it's less about like okay i want to be integrated and get a million views what what actually are you trying to solve through those million views are you trying to get consumers to feel a certain way about your product are you trying to promote a certain you know feature a certain benefit that your product has and how can we help you do that and i think a lot of times again we get so focused on what is the integration mm -hmm. that we don't take a step back and actually like, what is the problem and how can we help you solve that? And there's a lot of different touch points and services and platforms that we can kind of bring to you to help you solve that problem. But I think we want to look at less about what is our owned and operated environment and what less about, again, what is our owned and operated environment and how can you do things within that owned and operated environment and more about, how can, what, what core value does our brand have and how can we open that up to you and make it easy for you to tap into that in order to solve your own brand challenges mm -hmm. and brand problems. So what does the pivot to video look like for the publications under your purview? Yeah. So, um, I, well, I can only speak to, uh, the food innovation group right now. I think okay. the, the other things are, are, Give you a couple are, weeks. are fairly new. Yes. Appreciate that. Um, so at the food innovation group, uh, we have, uh, we are launching, uh, our, our rolling out, releasing our uh, video studio. So that will be, uh, in Brooklyn. I think we're scheduled for the beginning of December, uh, to launch that in mid November to, to early December. Um, so we'll have, you know, 6,000 square feet, uh, full studio, um, to be shooting content in 24 seven. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and this will, um, we also have the Bon Appetit kitchen in the One World Trade Center that we use for, uh, where all the test recipes, you know, all the recipes get tested. Uh, we also do a ton of shooting in there as well. So we'll have kind of two fully functioning uh, production spaces uh, in order to shoot uh, video. Uh, and then we have a 12 person video team uh, that sits within our group um, that again handles all production for. Um, both the editorial side and also the business side uh, mm-hmm. from a branded content standpoint. So what's the distribution strategy there? Is it mostly Facebook? Um, I think we, we're trying to spread our bets out as much as we can. So I think, you know, whether that's owned and operated uh, from a website standpoint, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, um, wherever people are consuming video, uh, we want to figure out what is our you know, what is our niche in that, in, in that platform, mm-hmm. in that environment, um, and then continue to, to test and innovate and try to create the best content for that platform, uh, from a food standpoint. So are you not trying to compete on the scale end? I mean, obviously you need scale to some degree, but as I said, I mean, the numbers put up by some of these food people are almost unbelievable. Yeah. We are not, I adds Bon Appetit and Epicurious we are not trying to compete with the scale. From a food innovation group standpoint, we are. So the food innovation group is a, I would I would consider it more of a B2B name. Right. So instead of like every time, you know, we're in the marketplace, I, I'd say, hi, I'm Craig from Bon Appetit and Epicurious Food Innovation Group. And, and that's really, look at it as like an umbrella group um, that has Bon Appetit, Epicurious underneath it. And then it also has um, our influencer uh, social agency called The Feed. And then uh, the farm creative studio. Right. So within this group, so you can at least bring uh, enough scale to the table that it's it's not like a game. You know, you can bring enough scale. Absolutely. I think with our influencer social agency strategy that we have called the feed, that you it it acts as a talent. Uh, a talent agency essentially, as well as has a, a distribution platform connected to it. So uh, Condé Nast bought a company called CitizenNet about, I don't call it about nine months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the, you know, I don't even know if this is a terminology, but essentially I look at it as it's a social analytics platform. That's how it started. And it's evolved into a, essentially like a social demand side platform in which you can kind of, you know, just like you know, the self-service on, on Facebook or Google, you can kind of plug into and, and buy ads across um, all the different social platforms. So when you really think about like our ability to kind of um, curate influencers and then our ability to distribute that through CitizenNet, um, those two things, I think, give us um, the same functionality and the same opportunities to bring to advertisers the scale that um, you know a Tastemate or a Tasty or anyone mm-hmm. in the marketplace um, is able to bring. So again, it kind of... I don't need Bon Appetit or I don't need Epicurious individually as brands to hit the same number of scale. We have to off, be able to offer that scale as more of a solution to advertisers who need that scale because they're sell, they need to sell so many products uh, because of the way that their business model works. Mm-hmm. How about the perception? I'm sure you run into this perception with media buyers that the, the tasties and the tastemates are to to reach younger people and the Bon Appetits uh, and Epicurious are to reach uh, old people like myself. <laughs> It's it, it's kind of it, to say, we definitely run into that, and I would say you know it's amazing because if you come into my offices, like I'm into yours, and they're great offices, uh, but if you came to our office, you would, and and I didn't put like you, you didn't see you know Bon Appetit or the Food Innovation Group on the door, and I was just like who, what group do you think this is? I'm sure you would probably say somebody in that more kind of uh, younger 
set, right? I mean, our staff mm-hmm. is made up of um, people of all kind of like demographics, but um, when but you your look, audience that's the key thing, not who's making the food necessarily, well, but who's eating it. Yeah, totally, absolutely. So <laughs> it's a mixed metaphor. Yeah, it's <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, if you look at the, you know, obviously the print magazine has a different audience than our social platforms than our digital, right? And so, so do you use the social platforms to sort of age down the audience? I wouldn't say nothing against down. as I get older, I, I find the older demographics more valuable. Than ever. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that, um, what's great about food is that it connects everyone, right? We do Everybody. All, we do. We are all into right? it. Right. We are all into it. I mean, that's why no matter what brand that you are, whatever passion point that you have, usually when that brand does a post of food, it has more engagement or more likes than any other passion point. You know, you could go to a beauty brand, a fashion brand. If they have, you know, a, a pressed juice picture on their Instagram, it ends up getting more engagement than any other imagery that they show. And okay. this is pretty consistent. And, and so I think what we're finding is that food and drink as the star of content, as kind of the star of the subject matter, um, is some of the most compelling content to connect human beings Mm-hmm. Uh, on platforms that they're just overwhelmed by the amount of content that's on them. And so that's really where we look at our opportunity in our place, right? So whether that's Bon Appetit and what that aesthetic and voice is, whether that's Epicurious and what that aesthetic or voice is, or whether that's our influencer social agency, um, being able to tap into multiple different kind of passion points and backgrounds and demographics, we, you know, we have so much fluidity and flexibility to think about you know, who, who our brand partner is and what their problems are. Are there problems with this demographic? Are there problems, you know, the older demographic, a younger mm-hmm. demographic? Is it a perception issue? Um, but you're you tr- also trying spinoff brands specifically for younger audiences. Yes, right? correct. Healthy-ish. Yes. And then, and then what is basically. it? Basically. For basically, I didn't know. Basically for Bon Appetit. Okay. Yes. Um, <clears throat> Clever for Architectural Digest. Yes. Yes. I was a little upset that it was only one R. And then it wasn't like three hours. It should have been, but it might not be too late. So explain explain these then. Yeah. So um, I, I will start with healthy-ish. I think that's a good uh, initial piece. So, you know, we had something at Bon Appetit um, that we've been doing in January for maybe this was, you know, a few years back called the Food Lovers Cleanse. And it was, you know beautiful content package that people consumers loved. Um, when we would talk to brand partners about it, they would say, uh, you know, this makes sense like food and wellness. But a lot of times when people talk about wellness, they talk about the lifestyle of wellness or they talk about, you know, they, they, they don't understand how food and wellness actually fit together. They have somebody in their mind. Wellness is such a strange term for me. Yeah. I'm convinced that it's a, it's a quintessentially American term that yes. like Brits would be like, Oh, give me a break. <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, exactly. It's so, it's so nebulous. It could be anything. Yeah, 100%. But for whatever reason, there's a very, when somebody wants to tap into the wellness space, they have a very specific idea of what that means. And usually food has very little to do with it from an advertising standpoint, as crazy as that seems from a consumer standpoint. Yeah. So the idea that Bon Appetit would do wellness to people, to advertisers in the marketplace, was kind of weird, right? Some people got it, but you know, as approvals, as you go up the food chain to get approvals or there, you know, it becomes a game of telephone and people at some yeah. point people would look at it and say, Bon Appetit and wellness doesn't make sense. Right. So then, you know, we had the idea, um, kind of mid year last year, 
um, that manifested itself when we launched Healthy-ish in at you know the, the third week of January, and it was this idea of like what is the next generation of of wellness, and I think it's the idea that people are going from like you know wanting eight pack abs and starving themselves or you know um, working out like and that just dedicating their life to it, right? Some people do that and that's fine, but most of us are having this balance, right? Where we might do yoga in the morning, we might have a grain bowl or a salad for lunch, and then we might have, you know, a burger and a couple glasses of wine or a cocktail at dinner, mm -hmm. right? Like it's about incorporating wellness into your lifestyle, not it necessarily defining who you are. Um, and I think so many people wanted a brand that kind of spoke to that. And we had the talent, you know, at Bon Appetit from a, from a tonality and aesthetic point, aesthetic standpoint to kind of bring that to the market. Um, and, and so when we launched Healthy-ish, um, we started talking to advertisers about it and everybody was so excited about the launch of this. And I started to, to, to think about, you know, what was the difference between this conversation around Healthy-ish and the conversations we had, mm -hmm. you know, in previous years about the food lovers cleanse. And I think the reality is, is that when it's, because Bon Appetit has been around for 60 years. You know, earlier in this conversation, we talked about perception, right? Because um, Bon Appetit has been around for 60 years, even though, you know, Adam, who is our editor-in-chief, has been there for the past six years and has brought a different kind of vibe and tonality and aesthetic to the brand, they... Um, people still think about it as like their mother getting, you know, Bon Appetit magazine or their well, grandmother that's legacy, getting. Exactly, right? exactly. It's literally a legacy. Absolutely, and so... People can't, their preconceived notions of what Bon Appetit is, they have a very hard time, and not just Bon Appetit, but anything that has a lot of equity and has been around for a while, I think people have a, a challenging time of like thinking about it in outside of any other terms but that. And so with Healthy-ish, um, it was almost, it was this ability to kind of tell a story and create a brand based off of um, a consumer passion point and an audience that wanted to, to connect with something but didn't feel like there was anything out there to connect with. And but there weren't any preconceived notions about that. Healthy-ish mm -hmm. has never existed until we started talking about it in the marketplace, until we built it from the ground up. Now, it was from the same leadership and vision of Bon Appetit, but it was a distinct, separate asset, di different brand. Different staff? Different staff, correct. Okay. Um, there is a unique editorial team tied to um, Healthy-ish, both on the website and from a social standpoint. So what is the, what's the role of the magazine going forward for each of these brands? And I'm sure it'll be different for each of the brands because it's always that balance because it is what makes you unique compared to digital yeah. um, competitors. And it is legacy, and legacy a lot of times is used as bad, but it can, obviously legacy is it's positive, actually. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, the numbers are the numbers. You know, I mean, I don't think anyone's sort of betting on print as as necessarily their future. Yeah. So what I would say is the the vision of print moving forward is that it's part of our brand equity. It's part of our brand heritage. And I think when you look at that, I mean, there's there's something about digital that we're just we're all moving so fast, right? Mm -hmm. Like whether you know you're on social, you're on the website. It's like there's a utilitarian aspect to all things digital, no matter how aspirational they are. And there's something about print, I think, that, you know, especially in this age in which, like, we're just obsessed with technology and just are on our phones or just never shut it off, that print opens up this kind of, um, I don't know, it's almost like a, a mental vacation in a way. It's like mm -hmm. stop and smell the roses a little bit. And I think 
print offers a nice complement from a media consumption standpoint as compared to like what we're doing from a from a digital and social yeah. uh, perspective i also look at it as as we as we communicate and, uh, and articulate the, the the value proposition that we can bring to the table from an experiential a creative services and influencer standpoint that um, print in a lot of ways is almost it's our portfolio it's like how do you know that we do incredible work and that mm-hmm. we tell incredible stories here you go it's the physical manifestation of that and the physical right. symbol of that and I think that is a very powerful um, medium to be able to kind of tell that story within it is revenue now majority digital correct okay this so year will be the first over, year crossed over the threshold we did yes this year it will be the first year so how does that change the organization i mean are people have you sort of banned people from saying you know we're a magazine or <laughs> well i think cattle prod no no i, I think <laughs> you know um uh pam uh drucker man who is our um, chief revenue and chief marketing officer so i um she was the chief business officer at the food innovation group uh before and i was running sales for her at the time and i think you know as she moved into her role and 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 moved me into to my role you know my background is uh i was i've been at conde for the last you know almost six years uh but before that i was at google and microsoft doing everything from you know sales when bing.com launched uh to working on the ad mob team at google so i have i have a predominantly digital background mm-hmm. so i think for me it's just the kind of a natural way of of thinking about things and and, and packaging things and the way that we're communicating right being a solutions-led uh client sales organization versus um you know maybe that one-way conversation about like here's yeah. what our brands are doing come be a part of it it's like no what are, what are you doing what are your challenges what are your problems and here's what we can do mm-hmm. to kind of help solve that i think it's just a different approach yeah. than historically has been um you know with with brands that have their legacy that that you know starts in print right it's interesting how whether or not sort of legacy um sales organizations will start to mimic what uh how you know the googles and facebooks organized you know what i mean yeah um i don't know from it from a what would yeah just just in like you know i mean it's a little bit different because when you when you have when you have brands but just like the way they're organized around categories you know yeah Um, i think that you i mean we're getting to a place in which when you look at this portfolio, you know, we talked about like one of the reasons, like what are the reasons why you do things like that, right? Like why do you bring groups like this together? And a lot of that is to ha- to be able to structure it in, in, in a certain way, right? Where you can be brand led and brand focused, but also an industry expert at the same time. Where if all of these individual brands are individual business units, it's hard to be staffed up and have the resources appropriately in order to have kind of like that industry specific knowledge. Um, so I think, you know, we are really, um, as a company, I think, focused on kind of a, a hybrid approach of being industry experts while not commoditizing or homogenizing uh, our brands and, and the way that we talk about our brands. Because our unique value proposition is our editorial team and our creative talent. And, you know, my role and my team's role is making sure that the marketplace knows about what that group is doing um, and figures out ways to... Um, enable advertisers and brands to tap into that group um, and, and on their behalf in order to solve their problems. Right. And I would guess that's the big differentiator from the Googles and Facebooks because you can't really compete on scale. I mean, they can use data to find whoever is interested in whatever. Yeah. I, I think, you know, we have a lot of data at our disposal as well. And I think, you know, 
with an asset like we have at, at Conde, you know, with CitizenNet, which is plugged into the Facebook API. I mean, there's a lot of ways in which we can um, look at audience profiles and help tell stories. Now, our weapon is going to be led with technology or led with creative uh, acumen um, mm -hmm. and cultural foresight versus pure technology. And I think that becomes more of like um, our complement to to Facebook and Google. We're not necessarily trying to compete with them. We're trying to complement uh, what they're doing. So how do we tell the right story um, and then target it to the right people and distribute it on the right platforms? Mm -hmm. Is display still a viable business for kind of premium content? Absolutely. You know, putting out? I th I, it's definitely still a viable business. I think um, when you look at what it means to, to say programmatic, I mean, I think it's, um, it's an activation method versus um, a buying strategy, if you will, mm -hmm. meaning that as things get more automated, there are usually less client service issues. There's smoother delivery. There's smoother billing. It helps solve a lot of those manual pain points that you have in playing mm -hmm. a game of telephone and handing a lot of assets back and forth. And so if you think about display as a fun uh, display as a function of getting more programmatic um, and what that means, I think that there's a huge amount of opportunities to, again, um, streamline and create less friction right. between how usually so you, you guys are be. not fighting the shift to programmatic absolutely not i'm i'm completely embracing that i for me like the amount of time and energy and resources that goes to an organization that mm -hmm. sets up display right. campaigns manually versus ones that set it up programmatically it, it, it automates our business right. significantly right i think it's it's just become i think programmatic has become synonymous with exchange buying I think that would be the difference. Exchange like open versus yeah, private, or, like open exchanges, not like private exchanges or well, PMPs or anything. Like well, that. I think the you know a lot of the things that have been covered that that you guys have covered are a result of open exchanges, right? Whether it's like the brand safe issues or showing up on sites that maybe clients aren't comfortable with. I think as you the, what makes private marketplaces uh, a, a thing of beauty, right? Is that you find the right brand environment, you fight the right contextual alignment, you find the right audiences in, in trusted worlds, right? Versus just trying to get the the cheapest CPMs all over the internet wherever mm -hmm. you can find them. I mean, if you think about it, think about since programmatic- But that's often yes. been the case, what I mean, mean? Yeah. in some ways. Well, I mean, you could make the argument that that basically the rise of programmatic has been a way, I mean, look, it it tracks with with some tough times the publishers of premium publishers have gone through to find the same audience on cheaper sites you know i mean the promise of programmatic in some ways is that it's like look you can find your audience wherever which is like hint you don't have to pay as much yeah well i think anytime you have anytime that you think about a brand moment it's this combination of reading the right person and meeting them in the right state of mind right and i think that has been shown i think over the last like four or five years and kind of like where the industry is heading in is that initially it was thought about like it was prioritizing audience above all else mm -hmm. and i think more and more people realize that even though i might be targeting the right person if i'm not targeting them in the right environment at the right time um that could actually have right no effect or a negative effect i, I recently heard a an interesting theory that if you track the rise of retargeting with the rise of ad blocking, that there's a lot of correlation. And that <laughs> one of the, and I think that's it, because I think I know just my anecdotal thing is that in covering this industry for many years, originally 
you know, when, you know, normal people found out they're like, started complaining about pop-up ads. Um, then they started asking me about how Google made money. And now they asked me why they get followed around by, by these ads everywhere, just because they looked at a, at a pair of sneakers. Um, and I wonder whether retargeting is, is the cause of ad blocking and whether or not, um, it just shows that people actually do like things that are contextually relevant not necessarily just because I looked at that pair of Adidas sneakers. <laughs> I see them everywhere. Well, what I would say is are, if, if they're showing you those pair of Adidas sneakers and maybe they're on sale or maybe there's free shipping, like what value are you offering? Like just continuing to hit me with the same message over and over again actually gets annoying versus creating a value. So how do you, how do you add value to the user experience through retargeting? And I think that's what we've been missing. And I, you know, with ad blockers as well, I mean, I don't think it's any surprise that like the, the UX experience across digital is not, you know, it needs to get better. It needs to, you know, it's not a controversial thing. Yeah, totally. Right. It's just, it's just like between, you know, pop-ups and, and everything else. I mean, you know, autoplay is the new pop-up. I don't know what, I don't know if, how, what your sort of policies are on it, but I was just on SI.com and yeah. had the double autoplay situation <laughs> <laughs> next to each other. <laughs> Bold. I think that I just toggled yes. back and forth with, with, you know, <laughs> which one to, to turn on the volume for. <laughs> I would say that there is, I mean, you look at social and you see the muted autoplay sound off. I mean, experience and, that is such a standardized experience at this point that for us to play this game of like, it's okay for Facebook to do this, but it's not okay for publishers to do this. Like, I don't, I, you know what I, it, yeah, but, I but what you, the experience that you just laid out is not a good experience. And I would say that there is, what we have to figure out is a respectful way in a contextually relevant way to, you know, do, do that because again, People's browsers yes. are going to regulate it. Yes. They're going to regulate it. 100%. Safari already started down this path. And this to me is the same as pop-ups and pop-unders. Every single publisher knew that they were doing too much, but it got towards the end of the quarter and they turned up the, the pop-unders and pop-ups. And the only reason that that got sorted out at all was because the browser is just turns it off. Absolutely. So, I mean, you think about, you know, one of the things that I don't think a lot of people have like covered in terms of like the rise of programmatic is that you know before call it eight years ago or you know maybe before 2010 i, th I think the start of programmatic i call it like oh nine ten would you agree with that yeah those are the salad days yeah right, right? media <laughs> <laughs> exactly so that you know before that if you launched a blog and you got enough of an audience and wanted to start making money off of ads you would have to talk to, you know, AOL or MSN or Yahoo or, you know, a she knows or a blogger, some sort of group that would represent your inventory in the marketplace. And now, you know, since the rise of programmatic, that you could be a blogger or, you know, an, an, an ad pro, you know, a product person, launch a bunch of sites and essentially set up a programmatic infrastructure across all of those sites, put that inventory in exchange, figure out a way to drive traffic there. And all of a sudden, like you're making a ton of money. And like, that has been one of the big, I think problems is that there is no regulation on it, you know? And, and there's a lot of smart people out there that can understand programmatic 
and can launch a bunch of sites and figure out, you know, through these tra traffic distribution partnerships, how to get a bunch of eyeballs on their sites. And they're essentially just like, you know, have created a structure that allows them to make money and we continue to throw, you know, bad money after bad money. And so um, that's the, the the negative side of, of automation and of technology. Um, and I think, you know, we are well positioned to kind of um, embrace the good side of it, which again mm -hmm. is, um, less manual service, um, which usually results in more issues from a customer service standpoint, more mistakes, right? Uh, I, I look at programmatic as simple as like, you don't have to carry cash in your wallet anymore. It's like, right. it's like the Apple pay of advertising. It should be. It should be. Yes. Okay, Craig, I want to thank you so much for coming in. This great conversation. And thank you all for listening. Uh, join us next week for another episode, but please do stay tuned for a snippet of this week's conversation with Katrina Craigwell on starting out. I'm Shereen Patek, and this is Starting Out. Digiday's newest podcast where I take the personal route to find out how it began for marketing industry's biggest movers and shakers. A candid conversation about their special powers that makes them tick and makes their craft and leadership so remarkable. Got fired from a retail job. Why? Um, you know, because when you have a job, you're supposed to really act like you're happy to be there. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think, you know, I was, I was in college and I think I was, uh, you know, you got to show up even if you don't want to re-rack the tank tops. doesn't matter. <laughs> um, tank top retailer. Tank top, really, yeah, everyone can guess what that was. But it was actually, it was a really, really good lesson, right? Um, you got to show up. You got to show up. I think, I think it's some, one of the most um, obvious and yet hardest to follow instructions you can give to people. You just got to show up, whatever it is, be dependable and just show up. Be dependable and show up. You're, you're not, none of us are entitled to anything. So if we're going to be somewhere, we're going to derive some value from something like a paycheck or learning experience, then show up. And if you can architect a better place for yourself to be, do that. Grow, grow where you are or outside, but make sure that you're doing it with integrity. Yeah. The entire way. And it's even in, you know, I wonder how much of it is even, even on an even simpler note, like show up to work, show up on time. And if you're yes. here or wherever, you're present, Be you're present. available. Yes, I agree. I hope you like the show. Starting Out is a production of Digiday Media. Subscribe now and tell a friend.